0: We're going to get started this morning on the Sermon on the Mount. We've called this the King's Manifesto. A manifesto is a public declaration, a statement of views and aims and policies, if you will, of the one who is issuing that manifesto. So calling the Sermon on the Mount a manifesto is really not a new idea at all. Forty-some years ago, John Stott was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he used this language. He said that the Sermon on the Mount is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. Stott, in his preaching, often used the language of countercultural, preaching back in the the 70s and 80s when countercultural was cool. uh, Stott was saying that in in the sense of that the, the Christian church as described here in the Sermon on the Mount, should be countercultural, And what he was doing was sounding the warning that too often we look just like the culture. Too often we're, we're conforming to the world around us and not looking different as Jesus describes all throughout Matthew 5 through 7. We are called to be a transformed people who love righteousness, who embrace repentance, who turn from darkness, who are not captured by the world's quest for riches or by its crippling anxiety, we are to strive to be humble and merciful and hungering for the words of our King and the wisdom of Jesus. The book of Matthew is, is structured around five major sermons, five discourses, if you will, five blocks of teaching. And so Matthew's approach is, is very organized in the sense that he is giving narration here 's some of what Jesus did. Here are the signs that he performed, and then he gives one of these sermons again there 's five of them they 're all clearly marked out because at, at each of them, at the end of them, he, he says the same thing. When Jesus finished saying these things, and that 's sort of his break point. The discourse is over, and now we 're going to go back to narration and The Sermon on the Mount is the first and the longest of the five discourses in matthew 's gospel. Leading up to it, he has narrated. He has talked about the life of Jesus Christ, particularly the incarnation of Jesus Christ, starting with the genealogy and then some of the events surrounding Jesus' birth uh, and, and, and then just some of the circumstances that follow that brief mention of Jesus' childhood. And then Matthew moves to the ministry of John the Baptist and how John comes to the Jewish people to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and they are to repent. And so he follows that by the report of Jesus' baptism, and then his temptation by Satan in the wilderness. So it's narration all the way through chapter 4, and it's in the middle of chapter 4, after he has established all that, that he begins now to show us the ministry of Jesus. Jesus now steps forward after the the wilderness temptation. Jesus now begins his earthly ministry, and, and he describes it, Matthew does, as Jesus coming up out of Galilee in in Matthew 4, verse 12, and he quickly ties that. One of the things we're going to see in in Matthew's approach is a lot of reliance back on the Old Testament. Matthew is Jewish. He's writing to a largely Jewish audience, and so he is going to repeatedly ground what he's saying in the Old Testament prophets, in the words of the Old Testament. And so he he goes back and he says, this is to fulfill what what was said by Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, some other chapters where it speaks of, of the Messiah coming up from Galilee. And then, in Matthew 417, the preaching of Jesus begins. It says, "From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." There's the There's the proclamation, there's the opening salvo, if you will, of Jesus' preaching to say, a kingdom is coming into your midst, a king is arriving. Everything changes at this point as he begins now to call disciples into his kingdom. And so Matthew 4.23 says, he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people after these two references, both to kingdom, Jesus coming forth and saying the kingdom is at hand, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, we get to the Sermon on the Mount. There are six more references in the Sermon on the Mount to the kingdom of heaven, two more references to kingdom. And so it's very clear early on, and this even goes back to John the Baptist in chapter three, that kingdom is an important theme. In fact, kingdom of heaven. There's little bit of confusion that can be generated about that, that phraseology, kingdom of heaven. Why does he describe it as kingdom of heaven? Does that mean it's, it's something up there? It's something futuristic? It's something that awaits us one day that we will experience? In, in reality, the phrase kingdom of heaven is really an expression of a Jew speaking about the kingdom of God and expressing the sensitivities in the first century of using the name of God. Matthew was cautious about that, just as his Jewish audience would have been, uh, being careful to not vainly use the name of God, and so kingdom of heaven really is just synonymous with the kingdom of God. His point, though, is to say this is not some earthly kingdom. You're, you're, you're used to kingdoms. They, in the first century, much more used to kingdoms than than you and I are today, where, where there is a ruler who is the sovereign. He's saying, but this is not like one of those. This is a kingdom whose Founder whose principles, whose lead is from heaven. It is an unusual kingdom. It also, by using that phrase, kingdom of heaven has the the added benefit of of including both kingdom of God the Father and God the Son. Think about it, first century, Jesus first comes on the scene and begins speaking. If if the language is strictly kingdom of God, his Jewish audience thinks, oh, God the Father. That's who he's talking about if he says kingdom of God saying kingdom of heaven, it really leaves open the, the possibility that this is not just the kingdom of God the Father, but it is the kingdom of the Son, and you now are going to be introduced to one who is a king in your midst. The whole messiahship of Jesus, what he is bringing to them, is now a king coming to them, and it is God's Son. But for the sake of the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom is a central theme. Again, going back to John the Baptist, repent, repent, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus proclaiming its coming. Eight times then in the Sermon on the Mount, mentioning this kingdom. Now, why is that important? Because when you take the idea of kingdom, of royalty, of ruling, and then you read the Sermon on the Mount, and you begin to see the the ethical demands of the Sermon on the Mount, the sort of moral peaks that are in this Sermon on the Mount that we are being called to as followers of this King, it's, it's easy to understand why for centuries the Christian church has wrestled with what to do with the Sermon on the Mount. You may have never considered this. You may think, I read the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's God speaking, and I take it as God's word. But the church for, for history, throughout its history, has, has wrestled with how to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. Who does it speak to? Who does it apply to? And a lot of that is because of the strong language that Jesus uses in this sermon, and I want you to see that and I want you to feel that. So if you're not already there, you can go to Matthew chapter 5. I said this before, I think whenever possible, if you're taking up a large portion of Scripture, if we're doing a book study, one of the best things we can do is, is, is read the whole book in one sitting. Do what the early New Testament church did when the letters or the Gospels came. They would certainly over time study various passages, but always on first reading when that letter arrived, that was the chance for the church as a whole to hear the, the whole letter from Paul to the Philippians, for them to take the whole thing in because they didn't have written copies of it, so they would listen as it was read aloud. And we're going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I'm reading from out of the ESV, which is what we use here. Uh, I want you to follow along in yours. We didn't do slides for, for all of this, so you can follow along or listen, but I... I I want you to follow along and I want you to listen especially for what Jesus is calling his disciples to. What what some of the things are that Jesus is saying that are his his commands for us, his expectations for us. What is his manifesto for his disciples? Now, before you go, wow, he's going to read three whole chapters. About 13 minutes. I timed myself out this week. (laughs) What that also says, let me just make sure we understand this. Most commentators will tell you this is probably not the whole sermon. So for those of you thinking if Jesus could do this in 13 minutes, why are you here 45 minutes on a Sunday morning? Because he's Jesus, first of all, but also because we're not getting probably the whole content. This is, this is Matthew taking... The introductory sermon from Jesus and saying, Here is my kingdom. And he is sort of distilling down for us the key principles that Jesus wants us to see and wants us to hear. So I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 5. And uh, if you just follow along, listen along as I read. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You've heard it said that it was to those, uh, you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. For it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard it, that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret." But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot. And turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Amen is right. You should not... The world sometimes will read stuff like this, classical literature sort of class, and go, oh, that's just, that's so beautiful. It's almost poetic and so nice sounding. I, I hope, I hope that we as believers feel the weight of what Jesus is saying. I hope that we hear what he's calling us to and understand the importance of what he's saying. This is why commentators and theologians historically have wrestled with the Sermon on the Mount, because they're looking at some of these exhortations going, I don't know what to do with this. Rejoice and be glad when you are being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Angry, lustful thoughts are evil. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be generous in forgiving others. Don't be anxious Don't judge people by a wrong measure. Do to others as you want them to do to you. Bear good fruit in keeping with what I have taught you, these words of mine. Very early in church history, the the monks were among the first to try to tackle interpreting the Sermon on the Mount, and they concluded largely that it was meant for clergy, that there was this distinction, that this is such a uniquely high calling, what they read here, that it was for a certain class, those who who taught, who preached, and that others could benefit from it by reading it, but weren't really expected to live up to it. Centuries later, the Anabaptists came and said, no, actually, All believers should take all of it literally and should follow it, which is why even today there are those who refuse the taking of oaths in legal proceedings, or those who say that they are pacifists and won't join the military because of things that they have read here. I've not seen what they do literally with the gouging out of the eye and the cutting of the hand part, but but it is a very literal rendering of all that they see here. Some of the reformers, including Luther to, to some measure, sort of came with a, a two kingdoms approach, sort of the secular realm and the spiritual realm. And the secular realm is important and it it, it should influence the spiritual realm. But, but ultimately it sort of set up this dichotomy that we are all too familiar with living here outside of DC, which is those beliefs are really good for you and they are personal and you should hold them deeply. But when you're out in the secular world, we don't run by the Sermon on the Mount. And so you're gonna have to kind of put those aside and, and, and sort of make your way in the secular world in a secular manner and yet sort of holding on to this stuff as well. Some even argue that, well, this is just another sort of rendering of the law. Much as the Old Testament law serves the purpose of exposing man's guilt and making him see his need for Jesus, that's, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is doing. It's proving us as guilty and in need of Christ. And as recently as the last century, the classical version of one school of evangelical theology wrongly argued that this has nothing to do with the church today, that this was Jesus speaking to Jewish people about a future Jewish kingdom, a millennial kingdom, and this was the rules of the road for that kingdom, and it doesn't apply to us today. That is wrong. So what are we to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Here is Jesus teaching us his subjects. How are we to respond? I'm going to give you two sentences just to frame the rest of our time this morning as we introduce the Sermon on the Mount. Embrace it, don't evade it, obey it, but don't be overwhelmed by it. Let me explain those. First, the embrace it, but don't evade it. We should not come to the Sermon on the Mount looking for excuses. We should not come to it saying... How do I explain this one away? How do I not be responsible for this one? How, how can this one not be applicable to me? This is our king. This is Jesus speaking to his followers. And it is a high calling because he is saying to those who follow him, you must be different. And following me will be costly, if not very difficult at times. If you are going to follow me and your body of flesh in the midst of this broken world, you can expect that it will be challenging. The demands are high in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus speaks to his followers as our king, but so too are the rewards. The the beauty here in, in the Sermon on the Mount is it holds this unique promise of blessing and joy in this life for us now. For these next couple of weeks after this one, we're going to be in verses 4 through 12. We're going to look at verse 3 this morning, but we'll be in 4 through 12 over the course of the next couple of weeks. And it's the the broader section, 3 through 12, is called the Beatitudes. It's from a, a Latin word that has the idea of state of blessedness or state of happiness. And, and, and some commentators sort of debate the precise meaning here. There's a Greek adjective that starts every one of these statements. Blessed are, and then he fills in the blank at that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. It's uh, makarios in the Greek. Commentators will say, well, this is, this is blessed in the sense that you are approved by God. If you do these things, then you, are, you find his favor, and so therefore you are in the position of being blessed. And, and others who say, well, no, it's blessed in the sense of you're experiencing an inner happiness and contentment that comes with this. I, I think you'll agree with me on this. It's not either or. Being in the place of experiencing God's favor, of, of being approved by God because we're, we're doing what he calls us to do, brings with it a sense of genuine happiness. Jonathan Pennington, who I'll mention from time to time throughout the series, a scholar who's written extensively on the Sermon on the Mount, says this, the first and primary sense of blessed are you is actually as a picture of human flourishing. This is what fullness of life looks like. That's important because the kingdom of heaven is not merely some futuristic expectation, something that we say, oh, it'll be so good then, and we'll be able to enjoy it then. This is how our king wants us to experience life today. This is a classic example of what we talk about sometimes in New Testament teaching, having this already but not yet flavor to it it's it's jesus has come and we experience some of it but the fullness of it is yet to come and so the kingdom of god we will not know it in its fullest sense until we are in heaven we will experience it in all of its glory and we will be in the presence of our king but two thousand years ago jesus said repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand It's it's coming to you now. The king is here. And so in Christ, not only is our future transformed, we have hope. We can face death, maybe with earthly grief, but with confidence, knowing to whom we belong and what our hope is. So it changes the future dramatically, but it's meant to change everything about how we live today. Today. And the joy and contentment with which we live today, how we deal with suffering and conflict, how we receive criticism or praise, how we experience having stuff or losing nearly everything, how we engage with people who are kind and generous and those who are really hard and difficult. All of that is impacted by our king and by the fact that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and what he's teaching us here. The gospel of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed is meant to impact our souls today. And so to hear and to follow our king in that is blessing. It is to know what what God has approved and so it is to know his favor, but it is also to experience something that the world does not in terms of peace. Happiness almost sounds flippant because we think of happiness in a worldly sense, but it really is. Desiring a sense of fullness of life that is happy because we belong to the King. If if your life is not being changed by the impact of Jesus, if there's segments of your life that you are holding back the way that you argue with others, the way that you deal with your co-workers, whatever it might be, fill in that, the the, the blank there. If there's areas of your life that you are segmenting off, you're keeping them in your kingdom. Because the kingdom of Jesus is to impact how we act and think in everything. And to help us see God's favor and to experience happiness in him. So, yes, is it demanding? Yes, it is the high calling of a perfect king who is calling us to be like him. So we must embrace it and not try to evade it, not try to explain it away, not try to duck the consequences or implications of it. Blessed are you when you do these things. But second, we're to obey it, but not be overwhelmed by it. Here's what I mean by being overwhelmed by the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you were, even as we read through it. It's easy to be overwhelmed by the Sermon on the Mount. If instead of seeing it as a path to flourishing, to fullness of life, if instead you take Matthew 5 through 7 as a list of rules from Jesus with little check boxes next to them, and I need to do these point by point, and on some days I'll get six or eight of them good and and only have failed on 10 or 15 of them, you know, and, I, and I'm just sort of mechanically going through these and, and battling in my flesh to accomplish these, these things that Jesus says to do. If that's your approach to this, that will constantly be a, a depressing battle of, of mechanical legalism that will leave you without joy and cause you to feel defeated over and over again. I must be more merciful to people. That's what Jesus says. I've got to give to that beggar. I've got to stop shopping for all this stuff on Amazon. I, I've, got to, I've got to change this or change that, right? I've, I've got to do this. I must, because this is what it says in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen, there, there's a measure of truth in all that. That, that. That's not to dismiss the demands of the sermon, but it's the part of it that says, I can do this. This is all on me. I just, it, it's willpower. It's willpower. It's discipline, it's just getting it right. And and I want to show you why that's wrong just with the first beatitude, and this is where we'll end this morning, is verse 3. I just want to help you not be overwhelmed by the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 2, Jesus opened his mouth, taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is an order to the beatitudes. There is a first beatitude and it is important first. It speaks of the kingdom of heaven belonging to those who are this. This is the, this is the prerequisite to the rest if not to the rest of the sermon because apart from entering the kingdom, none of the rest matters. If if Jesus is not going to be my king, I I have no business even worrying about the rest. So the kingdom of heaven is important. But what precedes that is, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. So it starts there, because without that, there is no part in God's kingdom. So I I should read verse 3 and immediately be saying, what does this mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? There are some who have, through the years, taken this to uh, to mean literal poverty. they'll, They'll translate it more as, blessed in spirit are the poor, And they do that in part because when Luke records Jesus speaking here, he says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Let's be clear here. Love of riches is condemned repeatedly in the scriptures. We saw it in in, in this very sermon, when Jesus says you, you can't serve two masters. If you love this stuff, then that's what you're gonna love and you can't at the same time confess that you love Jesus. But at the same time, scripture, while it condemns this love of riches, it also doesn't commend to us that you must be poor in order to enter heaven, that poverty is sort of a prerequisite to it. Jesus is talking about a condition of the heart it's talking about a, 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 our, our own spirit and how we respond. This is not self-loathing. This is not sort of, I'm, I, am, I must see myself poor in spirit means I must see myself as worthless. That's, that's not the point. If we're going to understand this, partly we're going to get some help, as, as Matthew often does, from the Old Testament. The, near the end of the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 66, 2, it says this, The Lord declares, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who is humble in spirit, who is broken in spirit, who is an equivalent to that would be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to humbly acknowledge my desperate need to receive help and peace and strength and grace from the Lord. To be poor in spirit is to say, I can't do this on my own. When we think of the words poor and poverty, we think of people who are in need, who are dependent on someone to do something to help them in some way and to provide for them. And the idea, the the, the language here is we need to be fully aware of all that we lack as subjects of the king and how we don't bring ourselves into his kingdom as as if we're somehow fully equipped. D.A. Carson wrote this. At the very outset of the Sermon on the Mount, we learn that we do not have the spiritual resources to put any of the sermon's precepts into practice. We cannot fulfill God's standards ourselves. We must come to him and acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy, emptying ourselves of our self-righteousness, moral self-esteem, and personal vainglory. Emptied of these things, we are ready for him to fill us. The key... To understanding and obeying the Sermon on the Mount is the same key that it is for all of the Christian life, and that is to continue coming to Jesus as we did at salvation, saying, I don't bring something here to try to impress you. I need from you. I need your rescue. I need your grace. When God saved you. He graciously enabled you to cast aside your self-confidence and every belief that you could do this on your own and caused you to see your sin and your need and your reliance on self and how it didn't work. And he caused you to admit that and run to the gospel and say, Lord Jesus, save me. Poor in spirit is just the present tense activity of recognizing that I still need Jesus. It's that attitude that, that causes me not to be overwhelmed by the ethical demands of the Sermon on the Mount because I know, in my flesh, I can't do these things. But at the same time, what should overwhelm me is the awareness of my own sin and need, how much I need to be crying out to Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is not overwhelming because if you're a believer in Christ, you are in Christ. You have your Savior's presence in your life. You have his spirit to strengthen you and equip you. Following it does not depend on your smarts or ability, just as when he saved you. James Boyce, about Matthew 5.3, says, It is a statement of a person's complete inability to please God by any human effort. One of the things you probably caught as we read through the sermon and that we'll we'll certainly focus on as we walk through it is Jesus' use of contrasts when he uses this as a teaching tool. You've seen the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. I say your righteousness must exceed that. You've heard it said that there's this checklist of sins that you must not do. Don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't lie. I'm telling you it's about your heart. It goes even deeper than that and it's about your thoughts and desires. You've gotten the sense that it's... It's about rule keeping. And I'm telling you, your thoughts matter in this. And over and over, Jesus rejects this mechanical sort of check the box kind of religion that is so familiar to the Jews in the first century who just say, give me the list. Tell me the do's and don'ts and I'll do the best I can to do them and I'll be good. And Jesus is confronting that and saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me because I... I'm calling you into my kingdom and to the expectations of my kingdom and to be like me, but I'm also eager to equip you, to strengthen you, to give you grace, to provide you hope that you can walk forward in my kingdom. We need to approach the Sermon on the Mount just as we do the gospel of Christ's kingdom, and that is with humility. I can't do this on my own. Jesus, I I couldn't perform my way into your kingdom. I couldn't earn my way. I couldn't will my way into being one of your subjects because I am broken and I am powerless and I am in need of help. I am poor in spirit. I'll give you one, one application for this week. Make it simple for this week. As you pray, as you talk to Jesus, not just, not just this afternoon, not just once, but as, you, as you're talking to Jesus this week, Remind yourself and confess to him, Jesus, I am poor in spirit. Help me plumb the depths of that. Help me know, to know what that means to be humble and broken and depending on you and resting in you. Jesus, I am poor in spirit. I'm about to deal with this difficult situation. I need help. I need to speak the truth in love. I am poor in spirit. Help me. It really is a life of blessedness that Jesus wants to give to the subjects of his kingdom. So what he calls us to, he equips us to do. And he wants to give to us a kind of deep-seated happiness that, that comes when we come with empty hands and say, I, I'm not bringing anything here. I just need help. I, I, I need you to, to speak to me through your word. I need you to fill me with your spirit. I need you to give me strength and grace for this day. And so as we take up this study on the Sermon on the Mount, it is it is learning what it's like to live in the Savior's kingdom and be different, and be counter-cultural, but it's also finding the grace and strength that we need to be those faithful subjects of His. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank You for Your grace toward us. I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is not fully trusting in Christ and who has in any way come away with the, the sense that being right with you is, is a matter of obeying these steps keeping these rules to the best of one's ability and, and that will satisfy Lord I pray that you would you would erase any confusion like that we believe that in your coming in the bringing of your kingdom that the the central point of the establishment of your kingdom was the cross. When you suffered and died in our place, bearing in your body the the scars and the pain and the nails, but bearing in your being our sin, and bearing the wrath that our sin deserves, and taking upon yourself the judgment of our sin, And then by rising from the grave, defeating sin and death, so that by resting in you, by running to you as king, trusting fully in you, there is life and hope and forgiveness. Father, for all here who are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, I pray that we would be challenged and convicted in our thinking, even this week, when we are tempted to somehow become self-reliant Somehow think we've got this become arrogant in our ways. Pray that your spirit would, would gently and kindly and firmly remind us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. There is a Savior who is eager to give us help and mercy. Help us this week to, to grow in our dependence on you, to cry out to you, to plead with you to realize that you are eager to supply for the the care and the provision and the needs of your subjects. You are desirous of us calling out and being able to fill us with supernatural grace and strength that is not of our own flesh. Thank you for speaking to us, Lord Jesus, as you spoke to that hillside of followers and inquirers and taught these truths. Thank you that here we are 2,000 years later with your living and active word, challenging our hearts, convicting our souls, and giving us hope and encouragement. These things we pray in your great name. Amen.